0: Thank you, everyone, so much for coming. I know it's late in the day. You might be hungover. (laughs) Um, Was anyone here yesterday just by a show of hands? Okay, good. We're going to make... Oh, you were? Sarah? Okay, good. All right. We're going to make the same lame joke, so I was going to apologize, but I'll just apologize to the engineer, who will be hearing them again.
1: We're um, sorry, but you got a donut out of it, so...
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, thanks so much for coming. Uh, Curiosity, you may know a little bit about it by the end of this presentation. Hopefully, you'll know a lot about it. We're going to drill down into the specifics of audio, seeing as how we are at an audio conference here. We think of it as a model, kind of an editorial genre, and a process. And if anyone was in Alique Spiegel's um, presentation today or yesterday, she's talking about tweaking things a little bit, how T. AL tweaked, you know, the sound a little bit, or the approach, and how Radiolab has tweaked that, us is tweaking the process of reporting the very starting points of it a little bit, so you can look at it through that lens, as well as, I'm sure, many others as we go. Um, if you are a tweeter, hashtag, our URL, um, we're also, or our... Um, handle. Handle, thank you, Logan. <laughs> Um, we're going to be tweeting as we go magically uh, some of the multimedia work that we've done um, along the course of our project that match up with the audio examples if you want to see more about how we report because we are a digital project. Um, and. So where we are, we are at WBEZ Chicago, you probably know a lot of uh, the programs that we do, such as This American Life, Serial, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Sound Opinions, and we also have a really big podcast family, so if you haven't checked it out before, uh, there's somewhere along the lines of a dozen podcasts now that we produce on a weekly basis. Um, And the core team, you just heard our introductions, (laughs) I'm the founder and senior producer.
1: I'm Sean Ali, I edit the project.
0: And I'm Logan Jaffe, I'm the multimedia producer. And Sue did a great job mentioning this. So just so you know, Localore—we this is how we got our beginnings. We did not, uh, we were not given birth to by the station, but with Air's help, we were uh, incubated at WBEZ. And there are ten other projects around. If you go to Localore.net, you'll be able to see all of them. They're terrific. They're all different. They all have lessons to be learned for multimedia producers, audio producers alike. And also, this is not because Sue is here, but seriously, join Air if you haven't already. Uh, they are responsible for getting me through my 20s entirely on tape sinks and random other. Uh, flotsam and jetsam and I think there's a discount too if you join it at the conference 10% off, nice okay so by way of just setting the tone and letting you know a little bit more about what we do here's kind of a trailer video Curious City is powered by open questions that anyone can ask about Chicago, the region or its people and that's led us to thousands of story ideas we never would have thought to do No matter how the questions are collected – out in the field, via our 1-800 number, or online – they all end up in our question archive. We curate these questions into voting rounds, allowing the public to vote on each other's ideas. This means our audience decides which stories we take on. Reporting happens from the ground up. Observations and curiosities from the community become our stories.
2: Where do I, Why is it
3: called? How many? Of you? Why aren't they? Who
0: decides what the? Name?
3: I was wondering.
0: The winning question is investigated by a WBEZ reporter and by the person who asked it. We show our work as we go, so anyone can weigh in on what we're doing and finding. And often, the public ends up collectively helping us find what we're looking for.
4: Hi, my name is Melissa McNeil. I am calling
5: to report a parrot sighting. You know between like 63rd and 35th. And my kids used to call Nicholas Park the parrot park.
0: WBEZ reporters, producers, and hosts have answered hundreds of publicly submitted questions. We find the best way to tell these stories... Sometimes it's radio.
2: This is a different kind of format.
0: Sometimes it's articles. Sometimes it's video. And we experiment with other formats, like tap essays, comics, interactives, even songs.
6: Only in Chicago!
0: The process of reporting our stories creates deep and meaningful connections with our listeners, readers, and viewers. The WBEZ audience goes from being an abstract concept to being Mike and Gerard, Leanne and Andrea. And WBEZ reporters go from being part of the media to Odette and Alex, Natalie and Anthony, real people with beating hearts, names, and personalities. The stories that result from this new approach help illuminate our city. A region we call home. Help our history come alive. Help us navigate what it means to live here now. See. See you. See you are curious. We're all in it together. It's your curiosity. And it's our
3: Curious City.
0: just a brief explainer of, of what we do, and we're going to dive into exactly how we do what we do. Oh, thanks.
1: <laughs> okay, so having seen the video, you may have seen lots of people wandering around with producers and reporters who are these people. These are the people known as our audience. And so we've actually been experimenting editorially over uh, the last couple of years of what can be done and accomplished in terms of doing journalism for the public, but also in partnership with them in ways that we think that audio producers might benefit from in terms of storytelling. So that's the basis of our presentation. Um, I'm going to be running through a little bit of a few things that might seem very obvious to journalists about the, quote, journalistic process, more of a workflow. But um, it's an opportunity to understand what things we've actually been experimenting with. So starting here, the thing to keep uh, keep your watch for is anything you see in red, and let's just start with the journalistic process here. Someone pitches a story. Hey, we're not just doing stuff willy-nilly. Someone pitches something. Usually it comes from a reporter, an editor, or a producer, right? Um, someone assigns that. Someone says yes, no. We have limited resources at an institution like WBEZ, and you have to make sometimes hard calls about which things to do. All right, report. Someone goes out into the world, gets the interviews, gets the uh, sound, um, does reporting, etc. And then click, it goes out into, you know, either through uh, radio, in this case, we also do a lot of multimedia stuff, it goes out into the world one way or another, and then lo and behold, red, here comes the public now, here they are, boom. Um, this is where the public now starts maybe commenting and maybe having a discussion around the thing that, you've, that your work has, already been, has now done. We've been experimenting at Curious City um, since 2012 with um, inviting the public to participate in various ways all along here. Maybe not, for every in, not every individual story has actually incorporated all of these, but our entire process is informed and we experiment with at every step. So, for example, fundamentally, all of the things that Curious City does um, originate with the public. Every story is based on a pitch that takes the form of a question about Chicago, the region, and its people. We're very locally focused. Uh, then we often uh, experiment with the public assigning the stories. So we have a questions database that's about 2,600 questions. Those are the pitches. And sometimes we'll collect them into uh, voting rounds. And if we, are, if we as a production team are very confident that we could actually accomplish these stories, we will let the public make the final determination on which one gets, uh, you know, at the very least, Produced, maybe produced first, that kind of thing. So that's kind of a proxy for an assignment process that the public is deeply involved in. Um, Then uh, you see a couple people here that are not producers, alongside our producers. Um, We allow producers to um, participate um, with the question askers. And they're along for the ride, as Jennifer likes to say. Um, show, and we also show our work along the way. Um, as we start reporting, we let the, the rest of the public know that we're working on something so that they can intervene with leads, uh, maybe uh, pushing us away from dead ends, that kind of thing. And we've benefited that from that several times, and we've been experimenting on how to do this effectively. Um, we, uh, by the way, we produce multimedia products, um, videos, uh, web articles, infographics, as well as a podcast and uh, live segments on, on the radio. And the takeaway here is that we're always working with and for strangers. And this is not quite the same as kind of a crowdsourcing sort of thing where we're only, you know, hey, tell us your favorite restaurant to eat at and everyone just kind of throws everything in one way. We draw individuals out from this crowd using various uh, technologies and we identify people to potentially work with one individual at a time and that's what we wanted to talk about today. What we have learned about this that we think audio producers are... should be aware of and maybe benefit from. First is is how these outsiders can change your processes, and the other is ideas for how you can involve them. Very specific ideas. And Logan's going to explain some technical aspects of this.
5: Yeah, thanks, Sean. So, mm-hmm. um, so we definitely do like to interact with the public on an individual level, but we also. Um, Definitely find value in interacting with the public on a like a larger scale and the public at large. And there are there are a couple tools that are that are very very simple that you might have even used um, that that we like to use to do this, um, you know, social media. Um, but the way that we benefit the most from using social media is, as Sean was talking about a little earlier, like putting out um, new pieces of information as we as we find them. So that so we have a Tumblr and we put up a lot of material that. Um, that we might find in the investigation that might not even make it into the story, but um, we'll use we 'll use twitter we 've actually had a, um, questions answered right through Twitter. somebody asked us a question about some like CTA stop, um, and the CTA actually tweeted saw the tweet and this. tweeted <laughs> back the answer so so not we,
1: very good radio by the
5: way. <laughs> right, but you know question answered hey um, um, voting, um, which we talked about um, we. Uh, have a lot of different ways that, that we do use that, and i 'll get into that in a, in a bit um, actually we 'll go there right now so voting this is this is a kind of a, our, our layout for how the public can choose which questions to to investigate. Uh, this is actually open source this is on github our entire, um, our entire interface is there, and you should totally um, mess around with it, uh, hack it if you want to, and keep us posted because we 'd really like to know um, how to do that so so this voting round um, is going to be the start of an investigation. This is a, where a lot of our stories actually start. But we've also used voting um, in, for individual stories as well. So in this example, this investigation is about uh, this old theater that you know, hasn't been in use for a while and is kind of this, this focal point of, the, of a neighborhood in Chicago and we got a question about ways that the community might be able to repurpose it. So we opened a, a Google form, which was on a different iteration of, of this website. So we asked for um, input and submissions, and then uh, added an upvote feature for a particular story. So there's two different ways that we're using voting, um, and you might you might use you know a Google form. You might use I, I'm sure you you've you've made surveys that kind of thing. It's it's a very kind of simple. Um, mechanism that we like to use at the start of a story and kind of in the middle as well right so this is actually these are just more suggestions and and the upvote function and then you know things like Vox Um, this is from a larger story we did about the American Dream and this is just a pulled out um, you know chunk of audio featuring different people and that's something that you're all pretty familiar with but we pulled it out of a larger story and posted it on its own um and th- these are all just very uh this is just a small selection of the tools that and and tips that we've experimented with um If you uh go to this link you will there's a there's a sheet with some more some more tools, some more takeaways, and you should might you might be able to find it on Twitter sometime very soon in the next five seconds <laughs>
1: <laughs> if the robot performs its job properly
0: yes. yeah <laughs> okay, great, so sorry. So now we're going to delve into some case studies. We're going to spend the bulk of our presentation here learning about what does it sound like when an individual comes along with you on reporting? How does it actually influence the sound of what you're making, the production process? What does it mean? Does it make for good tape? All that kind of thing. And we're going to play some excerpts from some of the stories we've done that show the various ways that question askers have become this new kind of character for us. You know, we're used to, as audio journalists, working with a specific type of person. You're a source. You're an expert. You're a narrator. Maybe you're a reenactor from time to time, whatever it is. Is but this person uh, that from the public can become a new tool in your toolbox. Basically, I don't mean to call the public a tool, um, but <laughs> in that way, uh, but they, they become a new asset in your storytelling. So we're gonna we're gonna play with that and show you how how that's happened. Um, so. He, Example one, a question asker can actually co-report with you. A lot of people, especially if you work in public media, you know this. Your audience is really smart. And a lot of people tell you after the fact how smart they were in the comment section. And you wish (laughs) you could have known they existed before the story even started or while you were reporting. So we allow people to come along and to co-report and contribute. We got this question in a while ago, which was just how many bats live in the loop What are their favorite hangouts? This was a, like, what the hell? Why would you even wonder this? There's (laughs) got to be a story here, we thought. And sure enough, there was. And so this makes for good tape when someone is your source and a question asker, and it's that anecdote that you're looking for along the way. So here's the story behind the question, which can become part of the narrative. So, let's go back to two summers ago, when we got a question from
5: Rory Keene. He was in Chicago's downtown loop, just strolling along.
6: I was heading towards the lakefront.
5: He was right at Dearborn and Adams, then out of nowhere... It
6: was really a bizarre turn of events.
5: He looked down and...
6: Lo and behold, I saw this kind of, like, tawny, brown lump on the sidewalk.
5: And he wasn't quite sure what to make of it.
6: Uh, at first I thought someone had discarded their, like, fried chicken or whatever...
5: But as he got closer...
6: I saw it twitch real quick, and next thing I knew, it grew wings, and it was flying you know, right around my ankles and, and then right past my
5: face. And quickly he realized that was not someone's fried chicken.
6: It was a bat.
5: Which prompted Rory to ask Curiosity this question.
6: How did a bat get in the loop? How many of them are down here? And where are their favorite hangouts?
0: So right there, just someone has a great backstory to why they even asked the question, which becomes a a kind of a meta-narrative within answering the question. So with this report in particular, it took a while.
5: Yeah, um, so the timing was actually pretty good uh, for Rory asking this question because it turns out that the Urban Wildlife Institute in Chicago, uh, which is housed at the Lincoln Park Zoo, they were actually starting a study looking into that populations and where they like to hang out <laughs> um, so, so that's, that's Rory right there on the right and that's Julia Kilgore on the left and she's a researcher at the Urban Wildlife Institute um, the thing is since they were just starting this study there weren't any results yet and the study was going to last um, a, really, a pretty long time and we wouldn't be able to get any results for maybe two years, like a, a year or two so the story actually took about two years to report as we waited for those results to come in Um, so, uh, this, this image is an example of some of the research that we got during that two year time that we would share with Rory. So this is actually a bat call, um, in a, in a given, in a given location in Chicago. Um, but Rory stayed with us for that entire, you know, two, you know, two years and yeah, we just you know, check up here and there. Hey, how are the bats? Well, we're still still wondering. Um, so, Yeah, so we would tweet with Rory
0: here and there and just let him know we haven't heard anything. And along the way, he was like, have you heard of white-nose syndrome? We're like, yeah, I, I guess yeah, we, we've heard of it a little bit, but what do you mean? He's like, I think this should be part of the story. So he sends us some research. He's, he's looking into it himself. And white-nose syndrome, if you look at this cute little bat, it might look like it's got a fuzzy white nose. That was not from birth. That is actually a fungal disease that's wiping out bats around the country, decimating them. And he said, you know, I think we should really put this in the story. So as we were talking about the relevance of his story and the reporting that he was doing with us, we decided, you know what, you're right. We want to make this part of the audio story. So um, when we started the story, white-nose syndrome hadn't yet reached Illinois. And by the time we ended it, it had. So it had this other importance as well. So Mm -hmm. this was something that Rory helped shape along the way that we may not have uh, put in there because typically we try to keep to it. exactly what the person asked to keep our stories from cycling out into like 10 part series just having some sort of focus but he made a good argument for it and so we incorporated it and
5: something to note too is that um because he asked that because he steered us in that direction it actually affected what the answer was going to be and where bats hang out so there was some sort of stake added there too because white nose syndrome wipes out mass populations in certain areas so
0: so here's kind of how this sounds like and translates to audio
5: What's really exciting about what we found so far is all seven species that
0: you would find in northeastern Illinois are actually using very urban Cook County, like living right here in Chicago. is really exciting. And especially that some of those species are the species that are affected directly by white-nose syndrome.
5: White-nose syndrome, it's a fungal disease that affects bats when they're hibernating. It's spread to millions of bats and has already killed millions, too. Sometimes white will kill 98% of bats in a given location. That means finding so many bats living around our area? Well, Lair sees it as a relief. But what's Rory's take? Remember, he
0: had that freaky moment where he almost stepped on a bat. You know, bats are a scary animal to many people, but do you think it's scarier to not have them potentially around?
6: See where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah, when you come across something really puzzling, like white-nose syndrome is, that's alarming. If it spells the end for bats, it's, it's going to throw things out of balance for us. You know, what we've done is impressive in one regard, but could it have all worked out without the contributions of even these tiny, erratically flying, illogical mammals that we call bats uh no
0: so there's rory effectively changing the course of our story not only is he the reason for the season why we even did the story to begin with but he's helping us end it as well Um, And another thing that a question asker can do is become kind of the kicker or the Easter egg. So you've heard this, if you've heard This American Life, Tori Malatia gets thrown around all the time saying all sorts of outrageous things. And that's a nice thing to have people still pay attention after the credits or maybe after underwriting. So that's something we will often use a question asker for as well, to kind of get them in there, maybe a piece of tape that didn't make the cut for whatever reason. Um, And question askers can can be great in this regard. Rory did not disappoint um, on that account. So here's uh, what we ended up doing at the end of the episode
6: you know as Herzog might put it in in one of these forthcoming documentaries that I'm sure it's on his plate the world of the bat it's both primordial and dark their eyes are not attuned to the same sensations that we as human beings have and thus Cloaked in darkness, they go on with their lives, oblivious, but sated by a night's hunt with the gnats and mosquitoes. I don't
3: know. <laughs>
0: So yeah, those are just delightful moments that we never would have otherwise gotten to do. Have someone play Werner Herzog for us, and at the end of a podcast, because you know we're inviting someone new into the process, where we wouldn't have had the excuse to do that impersonation. But he gave it to
1: us.
5: <laughs> you get pretty uh, you get pretty personal after two years. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Okay, so that's an example of of basically someone having volunteered their time to co-report with us, and they made a really big difference in the story. Again, we happen to have a format where we're taking pitches in the form of a question and the like that's not necessarily going to be the case maybe with you or the institution that you work for or maybe an independent project, but again, that's just kind of an idea that if you're open to it, you may actually find some new storytelling possibilities there. I'm going to walk through another one. Um, This time, this question asker did not actually accompany us for the entire reporting process, but I want to talk to you about what role she did play for us and um, a little bit of the question first. Why are Latinos concentrated in the uh, Pilsen and Little Village neighborhoods of Chicago? Uh, when did it happen? And it was asked by CM Winters Uh This is the question asker, and uh, this is at the beginning of a podcast uh, episode uh,
7: with our producer, reporter, Chip Mitchell.
4: How many? What is the? What?
7: (laughs) Welcome to Curious City. I'm Chip Mitchell. With me now at WBZ's West Side Bureau is our Curious Citizen, the (laughs) listener who asked the question. I'm going to answer.
4: Hello, I am CM Winters Palacio.
7: So, CM, let's hear the question.
4: All right. So, I wanted to know why are Latinos concentrated in both Pilsen and Little Village, and when did it happen?
7: Okay, well, we're going to get you your answer. But first, tell me why you wanted to know in the first place.
4: I'm really interested in how communities grow and develop, especially looking at, you know, I live on the south side in Auburn-Gresham. We're similarly working-class neighborhoods, and I'm wondering if we both have some similar historical roots as far as segregation. So the best question to start with is... When did it happen and why? And then to see if there are some lessons to be learned from there because, you know, we're both strong communities. You're talking about African Americans. African Americans and and Latino communities. But if you drive through a little village or Pilsen, it's thriving. When you go on the South Side, it's a totally different experience.
7: Okay, well, Sam, let me answer the when part of your question right off the bat. Okay. Chicago's first big group of. So Chip presents evidence to her for the rest of the podcast episode.
1: And what I want to talk about is that um, the question asker in this case, she was presented with evidence. Again, she didn't co-report. What's her takeaway? So often as reporters, producers, editors, we struggle with kind of giving the grace note idea, the relevance to the reporting that we do. And often the question askers, these volunteers, um, come forward with the rationale that they want to understand but we give them, often give them the chance to make the case to the rest of our audience as well. And so you can hear that in our next clip.
7: So CM, you asked WBZ's Curious City why Latinos ended up in Chicago's Pilsen and Little Village neighborhoods and when that took place. And now we've laid out some of that history. What do you think?
4: Hmm. You could say it's a relatively new neighborhood. To me, what it does is it helps to dispel one of the myths is it's a community with long historical roots. Because when you tell me that this just happened, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, it's like saying it just happened. It's not like it's been around since the 1800s right. or the early
7: 1900s. And you were hoping there were some lessons from Pilsen and Little Village for folks in your part of town, the south side. You see any? You can build community anywhere. Yeah, and quickly.
1: Yeah. Here's another example, and uh, Logan's going to take that on.
5: So, yeah, another thing, another role that uh, question askers can take on is becoming an actual character in the story. Um, So we got this question from a guy named Dan Monahan, and he wanted to know how often taxis are pulled over and what their most common citation was. Um, And sometimes question askers can come to you with with an idea of what that answer would be. So I'll, um, this next clip, that's Dan there on the left, um, and that's actually a... Well, we'll see the next slide. He's going to introduce himself.
3: My name's Dan Monahan. I'm a paraprofessional in high school. And uh, my question was, how often are our taxis pulled over and what's their most common issued offense? I'm coming from a very defensive standpoint where it's like I feel like I've been endangered a few times by cabs as a pedestrian, as a bicyclist, and as a driver.
5: Yeah. So so. Yeah. As he says, he's a bicyclist in the, in in Chicago. Has had a couple of bad run-ins with uh, with taxicabs in particular. And when he asked us this question, he thought that uh, the most commonly issued citation would be reckless driving. Um, so when we went out and reported this story, uh, the way that we did that was we had a, a reporter, Odette Youssef, um, and I was the videographer for this assignment, and we invited Dan to come along with us and go cab hopping in the loop one afternoon. Um, so we had maybe five or six cab rides, talking to five, five or six different um, cabbies in the area and asking them what their relationships with, with police are, what their, what's their experience getting pulled over. Um, and... Odette had done some research before this, too, and actually learned that the most common issued citation is for parking. Um, So that changed the story a little bit. And as Dan is with us in the car, you know, hearing these firsthand accounts, um, his attitude starts changing about what the answer would be and also how he perceives um, cabbies in in the city. Um, And... Here, this this is his takeaway at the end of this cab hopping experience, and we always we always like to ask question askers um, for 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 feedback along the way, as we've mentioned. And um, this is something that he says he's learned after that experience.
3: Learning that from every cab driver we talked to, that parking was an issue, that was surprising because when I considered this question, I had kind of reckless driving in mind. People. Have this like prejudice toward cab drivers act this way, and and they're out to get me, and I should be out to get them back. You know, I understand that cab drivers kind of get um, screwed over by the companies they work for, and I hadn't considered how the city screws them over too.
5: Yeah, so so I guess the takeaway here, um, and something that you all might find valuable, is that when you open up the process and you allow somebody else to become a character in your in your story, that does create this capacity for that person to change Um, and that that makes for good storytelling it it, the audience can see themselves in that person as well Um, so it can definitely shape your story
1: I'm gonna give another example here um, of what we've been experimenting with at uh, Curious City Um, as you know again our question askers uh, pitch stories to us um, and here's something we did not anticipate sometimes they can become a nice performer Uh, This gentleman here, Jeff Osman, had a question um, and he didn't necessarily come along for the reporting. He participated in some ways, but he wasn't really going along with the reporter or contributing a whole bunch of interview questions, that kind of thing. Um, But here's his question. What's the history behind the old telephone exchanges? And he gives an example. How did they get names like Humboldt 6? Uh, and the only thing you need to understand here is that in Chicago and in many other places, there used to be old telephone exchanges. Um, kind of, one as a mnemonic device to kind of remember telephone numbers, but they had loose associations with geography since uh, some of the telephone exchanges were actually located in some neighborhoods, so Humboldt Park, for example. Anyway, Jeff Osman um, got his answer. We actually delivered this digitally, and we, and we didn't actually even... Um, Anticipate that this would be a radio story instead. We produce what's called a tap essay Which is kind of like a powerpoint that's more interactive and gives a little bit more feedback to the user and so we published this um, About five months before we actually did an audio story and Jennifer had some great ideas for um, how we might be able to trans- translate this into a podcast and radio And But we're like, oh, something's missing. Well, the something missing is Jeff. (laughs) So um, we called up Jeff, and we decided um, he would actually become a performer here, and he helped uh, develop a script with us that he performed.
0: Thanks for calling Curious City, your place to ask a question about Chicago, the region, or the people who live here. Here comes a beep.
2: Um, Hi, Curious City. My name is Jeff Osman, and I live in Bucktown, What I'd like to know is, what is the history behind the old telephone exchanges? Why do they have names instead of just numbers like Humboldt 65127 or Wabash 23200? If you can give me a call back with some info on that, I'd appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Hello, Jeffrey Osmond here. I can't take your call right now. Please leave me a message. Thank you.
7: Hey, Jeff, it's Chris Bentley
6: from Curious City. Found an answer to your question about exchanges. Well, Jeff, a telephone exchange is where operators worked. It's where they directed calls by physically plugging cords into switchboards with electric jacks that corresponded to individual telephone numbers. You probably have a picture of this in your head already. There's someone sitting in a chair in front of a big board full of electric jacks arranged in rows and columns. Okay. Hello. So, okay, hope that helps. <laughs> call back if you have any more questions. Anyway.
1: <laughs> All right, so you get the idea. They play phone tag. And Jeff is actually reading a script here. Again, he kind of broke our mold of not really participating. But one thing you might consider is inviting a member of the public to participate as a performer. Um, we've, we've actually had quite a bit of, his, of success with this, and it's something you might want to consider. A side benefit of this, by the way, is now that you have a member of the public, a member of your potential audience, actually participate with you, they're highly motivated people. Um, uh, the Facebook post that we did about Jeff just announcing, hey, Jeff, thank you so much for your help, dude, um, That actually was a pretty exciting uh, Facebook post numbers wise. It was shared by a good number of his friends. It had a lot of traction and we have some other examples here of tweets and I'm just going to give this one here. Kim Belware actually asked our first question ever and she said, my old fire escape question was the first one in WBEZ's database and they answered it today. Yay, that's enthusiasm (laughs) considering it was two years later that we actually answered it. So again, that's an important side effect of like you're motivating your audience by letting them participate and that virtuous cycle can continue. Uh, another example I want to draw your attention to um, is this. Um, for people in journalistic organizations, this might resonate mostly with you, but um, may apply to independents as well. Um, a question asker or a volunteer can be the antidote for the drive-by anecdote. And here's a, a little bit of what I mean. The context here is the question, when did the state of Illinois begin its ban on Sunday car sales and why? The detail you need to know here is that Illinois does not allow you to buy a car on Sundays. By law, they're closed, as as it is in many other states. And our question asker came forward um, with this, um, even though she wasn't not in the car market. And the point here is I want to draw your attention to is that as an editor or producer, the first thing you might do is like, ah, I know what to do. I'll go get a Vox somewhere or I'll get a scene of someone trying to buy a car and have that fail, etc. My, my message to you on this is that this is bullshit sometimes. Like, don't, don't try this all the time. This is not the thing to reach for necessarily, and here's why. Those kinds of anecdotes are dispensable. Like, it's just literally random. You don't know why that person's there other than to buy a car. They may or may not understand the situation. The best tape that's imaginable in that situation is their confusion. They're just, you're just plugging them into your narrative, into your story that you're now controlling, right? So the, the consideration that we're making here is that, if, that we actually stuck with Julie, and I want to walk through what happened what, with her story. So instead of kind of going out there and reaching for this anecdote that was very dispensable, we stuck by her. This is her, by the way. What Julie? is going to be...
8: When we're... Where do I, here's the I, intro many, to what that. The, what? <laughs> Welcome. You're listening to WBEZ's Curious City series. I'm reporter Lauren Chulgin. I'm here in WBEZ's studio with the star of Curious City, which is always the person who's asked a great question about the Chicago region. So why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Julie Schatz. Hey, Julie. So what did you ask Curious City and why? I wanted to know why you can't buy a car on Sundays in Illinois. Mainly I ask because it seems like people are so busy all the time. The weekends are the only time they can go out and shop for a car and not selling cars on Sunday, they lose half the uh, opportunity. To go out and buy a car. And uh, how long have you been wondering about this? Ever since I bought a car uh, with my dad, actually we were out shopping for cars after I got out of college. So I've been thinking about it, gosh, for like what, twenty-four years. <laughs> I mean that's almost as long as I've been alive. So <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, please. And so let me tell you, i I have spent quite a while digging up an answer for this. So Julie, I've got some notes and some excerpts from interviews I did with people who can kind of tell the story of why Illinois banned car sales on Sundays. How about we walk through those two? together, and we'll stop here and there along the way. Okay. Sound Sounds okay? great. Sure. So before anything else, let's clarify what this law actually is. There's okay, a lot so when
1: someone's staring at you person. like this, you're gonna, you tend to overreport things. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but the point here for us as storytellers is what happened next? We stayed with her, and instead of just plugging her in as the Vox Pop kind of person or a one-woman Vox, um, we stayed with her, and here's, here's what we think paid off.
8: Three big attempts to ban car sales. Finally, dealers, salespeople, legislators, governor, and the state court all lined up 1984 took a long time so after all your years of agonizing what do you think I guess you know it's kind of what I, I wouldn't have ever guessed that it had started that long ago and that there was so many people who didn't want to do it I'm still surprised that it's the only industry that there is I mean why not retailers you know why not close grocery stores why not well you know that's I guess that's my next curiosity question <laughs>
1: Alright, um, th- some other things to consider is that um, you get another set of ears on this story before it goes out the door. Someone who may actually understand, the, uh, has, have heard some of the information that you actually already have in hand. And that's another editor role or producer role where you're just bouncing off, hey... You know, an editor or a producer going over this story before it goes out on it might say, hey, you know, isn't that an interesting fact that it took, you know, 24 years for this thing to happen? Well, she made that connection for us, right? So it's just another set of ears from people who are actually informed, not the pluggable person, but someone who's been there with you. Um, you don't necessarily need to hope for particip- participant feedback at the end of the process. You actually can get it ahead of time as well. Um, maybe she's not the perfect proxy for the public, but she's just as genuine as anyone else that you may have plugged in, in a more boxy kind of format. Another consideration is uh, these question askers and taking on this uh, this format in this way may actually um, allow you to have people participate in your pitch process who may have vested interest in topics. And in this particular example, the question was, can the new governor undo the approved same-sex marriage bill? And the fact that you need to understand is that until recently, the policy in Illinois was not to endorse same-sex marriages, and then that changed, and then we were having a gubernatorial race, and then the question is, would the new governor have the ability to do a switcheroo here? Um, And the woman who asked the question was highly motivated, and here's how this story began.
2: But first, a question about Illinois' recent legalization of same-sex marriage. It's a law that's particularly important to our first question-asker, Chicago and Christy Pettit-Schieber — and, apparently, to her girlfriend.
0: She goes on Etsy all the time, and she will pull up, like, hundreds and hundreds of engagement rings and then force me to look at the
2: website and go, do you like this one? Do you like this one? What do you think about this one? Okay, we know gay marriage can be a divisive issue, but Christy's question is pretty nuts and bolts about whether Illinois' new law is really here to stay. To find out, we spent hours in a studio together. We made phone calls. We asked a lot of questions. I'm going to play you some tape of what we found. Christy and I started the same way anyone who's looking for an Illinois civics lesson should start by calling this guy. My name is. Okay,
1: so Christy is in it to win it, so to speak. You know that she's participating. She's doing some interviews and the like. And uh, these question askers, we found, have asked at the very least different questions than maybe our producers have. And we kind of feel that like, her motivation in understanding an answer to this is uh, valid, interesting, and applicable to anyone on either side of the issue. But we may have stayed away from it if we had just said, oh, well, we need to start with a politician or an expert or something like that.
2: This is Greg. Greg, hey, this is Alex Keefe, and I'm here with our question asker. Greg, my name is Christy Pettit-Schieber, and I'm a WBEZ listener that has some questions. Okay, Christy, Greg, Greg, Christy. So <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and let, let Christy ask the question to you.
0: Okay, so Greg, we've really answered the question, I think, for the most part, of whether or not the next governor could reverse the same-sex
7: marriage legislation that just passed.
5: And my next question is, would any of the candidates reverse it?
7: Nobody really would want to use the political capital that they would need to spend to bring this back up. There would not be an email.
0: So there are challenges taking on this, of course because involving another person in your process uh, is is just more complicated by its very nature. So we're just gonna walk through a few of those challenges and we can tell you any more along the way, especially uh, during questions at the end. But regarding this vested interest thing, we've, we've seen this a few times during the process. So sometimes it's when they've asked a question, we can tell there's a vested interest there. Sometimes it's not until we've interviewed the person and said, why do you even care? Um, but here's an example. This can happen during a question asking process if uh, someone is submitting. Uh, this guy, who says he's anonymous, but I know exactly who he is, has been sending me press releases for a year about Chicago's drawbridges and how he's the expert and how we should do a story on drawbridges. And I explained to him, look, I mean, the, the nice thing about this process is that you are protected from press release people because you're like, I'm sorry, no one asked a question about drawbridges, so we can't do it. We only respond to questions the public has asked. So Mr. Anonymous here, Patrick, wrote in, why do so few people realize Chicago is the drawbridge capital of the world and so often take these bridges for granted? It's like, huh, that looks motivated, you know?
1: I was suspicious on this one, too. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But at the very least, he understood, okay, well, if I'm going to be a PR person, I have to be sneaky about this at the very least least <laughs> and try try and do this. But what's nice is that um, by asking people questions, this is something you can consider if you're, if you're thinking about this process as an independent or as a station, is that you can ask them right then and there, what makes you interested? Is there a good story? And right there, you can tell if there's an, a vested interest, and you can make a decision as to whether or not that's worth uh, you know, doing. And we're just transparent about it. Once in a while, when we do have people have, have a vested interest, we just let them know. Let the public know this is why they care. I don't think we're going to answer this one, though.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Darn it. Um so another challenge um that we've come across is um how to make good voting rounds and what what makes a good voting round. Um so what we do definitely okay, so when a question wins, we are committing to do that question. We are committing to do that answer in some form. So before we actually put those questions into a voting round, um you're going to have to make some phone calls. You're going to have to do some research into all these things that you put in to make sure that that answer is, is feasible, that you can actually deliver um, on, on what that question is. So we'll, we'll spend some time making phone calls. We'll, we'll look through our, our, our archives to see if we've done um, anything like that before. Um, and and we'll talk with people. So this is an example of of, some, of a voting round that didn't, didn't quite go so well. So the question that won is, is who are the Tamale men? Um, and if you live in Chicago, you would know that the tamale men there—it's—it's it's not like a like a group. It would actually be who are who is that tamale guy? Or, yeah, they're individuals like,
1: who deliver tamales to bars late at night.
5: Right, like um, in, in coolers. So this person wanted to know who they are, and there are some problems with that because, for one, you are asking—they're hard to get in touch with, and they're definitely hard to track down. Um, so you would be reporting on a story that you can't actually confirm. You would be able to contact them before you, you have to commit to doing it because it won. So, so that's one that's one issue with it. Also, um, they may or may some of them may or may not be undocumented citizens, and you don't really know that kind of thing ahead of time. So that's so being able to research and kind of vet what you're going to put into a voting round um, can be very challenging, definitely. Also, people drop out of the process. You know, we'd like to invite people to come along if
0: they're interested. Whenever they ask a question, we guarantee them if they have time and energy to come with us on some part of the reporting process. But sometimes they type in the wrong email or they are in Europe for two months or they don't answer their phone or they don't really check their email. So we always commit to doing a story. we, We see it through regardless if the person is involved or not. We prefer them to be involved because we think it makes for a richer process and a better final story. But people do drop out. They're busy. They have five jobs, seven kids and whatnot. So uh, you can't guarantee participation at every point.
1: This shit takes time. <laughs> it really does. Um, it adds another layer of complexity, editorial thinking, production. Uh, we just laid out an instance where we're vetting questions um, that aren't necessarily directly from reporters. They're from a member of the public, but then we have to add, hand that to a reporter or producer to see if we'd be able to do it in the first place, um, and then go back to the question asker, etc. One of the, my favorite questions is, have we interviewed the question asker yet? That might not even produce any actual audio, and so the idea here is just you're going to be busier, um, or at least we are, and that's one thing that we probably should be upfront about. In our very intense process of um, audience engagement that we've committed to, um, for you know, editorial reasons, it actually does have an effect on the, on the production. Another thing to consider is that, you know, making question askers aware or these volunteers aware of your process, there will be instances where they don't know things about you, and you don't know things about them, and you need to negotiate that or clarify things. I can give you one example. Um, One would be where someone may have uh, a different understanding of a key term of something, say, like gun violence, what that means. Do we include accidents with guns? Is that gun is that really gun violence, and so that can, can lead to a conversation about what they're how they're interpreting their question in the first place, and that has consequences for how you have to report and produce right so that's something to consider as well if you're taking their contribution very seriously it's just as with another source you have some clarifications to do and we've, we've we have found that sometimes we didn't do that um, and we learned the hard way another consideration is is who is the question for um, is like, we made, again, an editorial commitment to helping people, you know, get their questions answered. But actually, they're also volunteering a story pitch for an institution that is a journalistic institution that has a cultivated audience. And our audience is a broadcast audience, so it's limited. So the thing that we're asking of the, of the audience is, give us your questions about Chicago, the region, and the people that you would like us to answer Hopefully, not the Sun Times, but like, you know, or someone like that, right? Um, so, the thing to, for you all to consider is that if we've been doing this and we've been learning about our relationship with our audience in Chicago, you may want to consider who you're doing your thing for. Is it your podcast audience? Is it your institution zoned audience? Is it just for fun? What is it for? And does your question asker or your volunteer understand that as well? Because they, you, didn't want, you wouldn't want to make. Uh, a promise that it's going to be like on this American life or something. It just, you know, this is for my whatever. And they literally may not understand that. So next
0: are just a few of the quick things that we've learned. Uh, we've had lots of presentations just all on takeaways in this regard, but just to give you a few, um, we found that there, the variety of levels of engagement that we offer have different journalistic value in each of them, so the same people who vote aren't necessarily the same people who ask questions, aren't necessarily the same people who come along and uh, you know report with us. You might think of yourself in your internet behavior. Are you someone who comments on things? Maybe not. Are you someone who calls in? Are you someone who reads everything through and through? These are all different sets of people So by offering a variety of levels of engagement, you might find different audiences along the way. Another thing we didn't know um, in starting out two years ago if our audience would actually like this material if this would be something that would resonate with them. Um, the great news is it has been. It's been a really popular series on WBEZ. Um, audience research shows we're uh, just behind *This American Life* and *Wait Wait Don't Tell Me* on WBEZ as being things that people seek out and they recognize. Um, so that's great, and I, we found that too. We have seven other chapters that have started around the country, and they've had um, a few of them have had uh, their websites' greatest hit uh, with this process. I, I like to think of this as like capturing the psychogeography of a city. So it it's, doesn't neatly fit into the beat structure. It's people noticing things that aren't necessarily education, or science, or politics. It's all the things in between that come from just observing and being a human being in the world and having these kind of ephemeral wonders. So in that way, I think it really resonates with a lot of people because they're like, oh yeah, I've seen that too. I've wondered as well. It, it gets them more motivated to look at and share and think about uh, the content that you're producing. Um, our favorite metric, though, is handwritten thank you cards, and I think um, our desk gets—I uh, think it's fair to say—the most of them in our <laughs> in our newsroom. And when you have two years of reporting with someone, you know you're going to have a relationship. Or if you bring them along somewhere that they don't have the access or power to go to without you, you know they they can't just say, "I want to go crawl around in some basement and see if there are tunnels from Al Capone." <laughs> and a theater owner would be like, "Sure," but as a reporter, we have the superpower. We are allowed in spaces that no one else is allowed to go into, and by sharing that power with other people they're very appreciative and we're appreciative too of them because they make the process all the better and remind us holy shit being a journalist is amazing you get to do all these things that's easy to forget sometimes when you're in the daily grind and the last thing I want to end on here um, in terms of this, this part of the presentation is that I really feel it's important to engage because you actually care. So if you're someone, I mean, I mean, this engagement term is being thrown around everywhere. We need engagement. We need relationships. But, you know, when you see those things on CNN, like on the scrolly bar, it's like, what do you think? Tweet us. It's like, do you really care? Is there someone checking? Maybe you have some intern going on there saying thanks or, you know, tell me more, but no one's really listening. You know, and I think if you really listen, you find that people change and you change as well. So here's an example example, this woman Janice Thompson asked us a question about fracking and how much natural gas is produced through fracking in Chicago. It was a tough question to answer. It took a few different blog posts. It took a reporter, a lot of, you know, emailing around. And along the way, we were asking Janice, what do you think about what we're finding? Is this going to change your behavior? Do you actually care? And about a year later, we saw this blog post that she sent to us that she wrote about how us actually giving a shit about what she thought and engaging her in the process actually changed her. She said that knowing the staff at WBEZ's Curious City cared what I did, that they valued citizen input as much as that of experts, kept me going. She ended up starting her own electric community that's telling people about the things that she learned during this process and actually took the reporting further than we did about how electricity is aggregated and is trying to educate her community around that. Because she found out, and we found out through asking the question, there's not good information out there. So that's something that is like kind of a highlight for us of, of what this process can do if you empower people and if you actually listen. So as Sue mentioned before, what's happening next, hopefully, is taking Curious City into Curious Nation, and right now we have six or seven other chapters that are started, but if you're interested as a freelancer, as a reporter, if you're working on a project about how to implement some of these um, ideas or even our software into the work that you're doing, please get in touch with me. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. And also, there's going to be a new job opening at WBEZ to be producing on this project, working with these two fine people, the most fun you'll ever have with Logan and Sean, and that'll be opening up very soon. So if you're looking for work or if you know someone who might be interested in this kind of thing, definitely reach out. So I think we have about um, 10 or 15 minutes left. Uh, yeah, 15 minutes left for questions. So uh, I think it's an omnidirectional mic, so you can yell them out from wherever you are. Just so what you were saying about not faking the car scene, can you talk about that again? Because I didn't understand what you, um, what you were saying. Like, what, like, by not faking it, I mean, I can imagine, but I'm not sure. Like, by not faking it, you gain... You know, was it just the
8: I wasn't sorry, was it Was just the fact that at the end she had an answer, and you got to include that in the story, or uh, actually not so much
1: whether not so much whether um, say tape or a scene is necessarily faked. The question the question is is what's the value of the thing? So um, so often if 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 I were just to do this story, if some reporter had had pitched this to me, um, you know, a couple of years ago, and said, oh. I just, I just realized, or I tried to buy a car, and I, just, and I wasn't able to do it on Sunday, "Huh, editor, maybe we should do a story about that." And I go, "Great job, Lauren children, nice let's do that story. What you going to do?" And one of the first things that we often do is, like, let's go find that person who cares about not, buying, you know, about not being able to buy a car. And you know, you can find those people if you literally just stake out a weekend at, at a car lot and wait for some sucker. Who's just as confused as this woman was about why it is that they won't be able to buy a car? What's the outcome of that? The best outcome you're gonna have is, shit, I can't buy no car today. Golly. You know, that's it. That's that's as good as it's gonna get because they're just as ignorant at the end of the story for the audience, from the audience's vantage point, as they were at the beginning. But the difference is, is like what we're suggesting is that we've actually learned that um, at times we can experiment with like keeping that person who would have just been the token spot holder in the box, and keeping them in the process to like bounce the idea back and forth, and to get some some you know maybe some uh, resolution or a, a change of idea or some connection that we wouldn't have made ourselves. So often what would have happened in a traditional, say, NPR story, and I love the network, but one thing you often will hear is like, well, this person will give us the anecdote, and then some expert will say something, and then some other expert will say something that will kind of wrap it all up for us, or we'll be really smarmy or smart or um, with our own kind of takeaway. What we're suggesting is that sometimes you can just stay with that person, see what they have to say. I mean, the worst that was going to happen with us was that Julie was going to produce some bad tape Maybe she didn't care anymore. It's like, oh, thank you. That's the worst that would have happened and we would have continued you know, producing something. But we were very pleased that she was able to kind of be very articulate and give us some new ideas uh, that we were to bake into our story.
0: Uh, yeah, right back there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is obviously lots of
7: very great civic-based storytelling, but I'm wondering if, in two different ways, do you ever get yourselves caught with
1: having a question being upvoted to a level where you have to do it and you're all kind of like, eh, this isn't a very engaging story for us as producers, but I yeah. guess we have to do it. Yeah. And alternatively, too, do you get stories that are less civic engagement stories and, and more like heart, bleeding heart stories, comedy stories, stories about human interest yeah. mm-hmm. that are not calling the governor about a question and not finding out about bad populations? Like, do you have those things crop up, too? Okay, um, I'll take the first one, if that's okay. Yeah. Um... Well, actually, let me take the second one. The the, the second one first. Uh, The question is, is, like, this human interest element. You know, that's actually really hard. Because we weren't really sure... I mean, we've only been doing it for two years, and we weren't really sure exactly what kinds of questions people would put forward. And... um, you know, a lot of the questions we we got were like, you know, how do they clean that bean statue downtown? And you know, what's that building over there? Or how come there's so much gun violence in my neighborhood? Or how does segregation work? You know, that kind of thing. Um, things that are very that people are very directly interested in. And oddly enough, they don't ask questions that are kind of voyeuristic. Like, tell me, I want you know, ask me questions about myself. They they typically don't ask that kind of thing. So we kind of thought, well, maybe it's the case that our audience really doesn't understand what we're one, capable of doing and two, what we're also interested in doing. They might, parts of our audience might actually understand that we're capable reporters and we have capable reporters and we can go to city hall and answer some of this stuff. But they might not know that we're actually interested in storytelling, which we also do really well, right? This American life, I mean, the kind of ethos is in the place. And so through social media and other means, we indicate to the audience, by the way, do you have any questions um, of being in someone else's shoes? And so we were looking for things like, what's it like to be a bus driver? What's it like to clean windows? What's it like to live with poverty? And so one of my favorite questions that um, ever went through this entire process was, what's it like to live on minimum wage in Chicago? And that was the result of us making that call out to draw in stuff that we would be capable of and interested in. And so once we started asking some of those kinds of human interest questions, we got more of them.
5: Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, there's a feedback loop that goes on. When someone hears a story about transportation, then right afterwards <laughs> we might have yeah. four questions that come in our question archive that are similar. Like, what about this highway or what about that? So yeah. people listen, they understand what we're doing, and then they respond in kind. And about your upvoting question, we actually engineered the system. We, we thought a lot about that, about just allowing everyone to upvote on everything in our archive and then see whatever hits the top that. would win. But what you said was exactly what we were trying to avoid, where someone, you know, let's say they ask, why does Mayor Rahm Emanuel suck? And then everyone upvotes it, and they're like, oh, now we got to do it, because it looks like (laughs) Uh everyone (laughs) voted for it. But we, as, you know, this is kind of like the subtitle of, um, you know, or partly to do with the subtitle of our talk here, which is, um, you know, not to be confused with user-generated content, or not to be confused with this thing where the public is completely telling you exactly what to do. We do have these kind of... Gaps or firewalls in between where we, we curate question rounds ourselves. Mm-hmm. So there's no upvoting on the entire archive. So we we take questions from the archive and curate them kind of like, I don't know, like a mixtape. Like you're looking for similar tone or scope or style or subject matter or whatever to put them together. And then um, we, we know that if, you know, whatever one someone votes on or whichever one wins, we're happy about doing that. So we don't let them kind of do free-for-all on the whole archive. Because also that would disadvantage older questions or newer questions over... Older questions, if something's been in the archive for a year, that's going to have had time to have more votes than something that came in two days ago. Mm-hmm. And so our stuff tends to be evergreen,
1: too. It's, it's actually, you can kind of think, the way we approach it is it's more of an editorial partnership. Mm-hmm. And if we, if, we, if we had a little bit of language to tweak, I think we would probably make it even more explicit. The thing that you're actually doing when you ask us a question is you're giving us a pitch in the form of a question. And you might be able to participate, and we would love it if you would. Um, that kind of clarity, I think, would help a little bit in that regard. But it's still kind of an editorial partnership. We don't, we don't feel compelled to do questions. And we have the pick of the litter. We have 2,600 of them. Um, my, from my vantage point, we don't really need that many more we need like a lot of we need more good ones that are unique and come from different communities than the ones that we actually hear from already, and that's that's the bigger challenge. Did
6: we get
3: into so. a combative relationship with your question, asker?
1: I would not want to fight Julie Shatz. Um, <laughs> no way. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, sometimes. Um, in the in the uh, example I gave, where we were talking about gun violence, um, it's not that she was combative necessarily, but she she we were almost done editing this story. And I was like, good job, reporter, awesome. You know, what did the question asker have to say about that thing? And he's like, oh, okay, I got to call her. You know, because he wasn't part of our core production team, and so he's not necessarily engaged in the process all the time. So I had to remind him. I was like, oh, check in. So we kind of gave her a little bit of the answer. She's like, well, wait a minute. Like, what about all the gun accidents? Oh, that's weird, because you gave us a question about gun violence. And I guess that would be a debatable point, Right. And even within our own newsroom, I had a different view than she did even. And so I I, I called her and talked with her for like 45 minutes about this before before we went on air and after um, several times. There was one question asker who was very disappointed about a story we did that she thought was poorly reported um, about the cost of fireworks at Navy Pier. Um, But instead of calling us or anything, she just wrote a blog post about how we suck, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, got a few things wrong herself. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, you have a point on this thing. I'll, I'll investigate it. So I, I tried calling her. She didn't write back or anything, but on occasion. But most of the time, you know, I think most people, they run a gamut of how interested they actually are. And sometimes they're really gone to, to like, they don't even care what the question is. They just want to be on the radio or they want to, like, have their picture on the website or whatever, and that's okay. Um, other people are like, eh, just give me the answer. Thank you very much. I got kids to raise or something like that, you know.
0: But by and large, it's a very, uh, usually non compatible, yeah. usually a uh, very healthy relationship yeah. with people. We'll run into question askers at grocery stores and look at us hugs <laughs> yeah. and it's, you know. <laughs> and they're repeat
1: customers, by the way. Yeah. Like some, some people will ask multiple questions and sometimes we've even answered multiple ones for them.
5: Okay. Yeah. Right here. Mm-hmm. Um, so the place I work for, we're trying to start doing this with generating questions, um, for, we report on energy in North Dakota and Colorado and Wyoming, and we're running into this issue where um, in North Dakota in particular, like the audience is very small for public radio. I mean, it's a small state, but it's a very small percentage of the listenership listens to public radio. So we don't have this like huge base of people to draw on for questions. And it's not a super like tech savvy tweet. Like, I don't know a lot of people that tweet there. Um, so, how do you do that in an environment where it's not? you don't have this like great audience you can tap into like you did with WBZ
0: We highly recommend Vox, going out with your recorder, putting your gym shoes on, and just spending an hour to, you know, a whole day in a place that's pretty crowded. Maybe go to a mall or a plaza in a downtown area or just find people. We actually really like going to neighborhoods where people are like, WBE what? Like, what kind of music do you play? And we're like, oh, we're NPR. What's NPR? You know, like, we go to places where people don't, haven't heard of us before. And then they get into the process and they tell their friends. And when their story airs, you know, there's 20 new people who have never heard of WBEZ before who. Who are now exposed to it and who are coming to us frankly with different points of view than our common audiences mm-hmm. so i think just going out into the community um going to events fairs festivals where
5: people are and and asking them for questions is a really good technique also opening up your, like a hotline too if you have them and, and being letting people know that you're open for voicemails um, we we have a our default set to collect questions from people who call in um, you know, not everything has to come right through our website. So even if you know if there's a bulletin board somewhere in like some some restaurant or somewhere that people hang out, just pin something up, leave a little leave a little note. We have bookmarks that we take with our call in number um, and our website too.
1: Sometimes we'll gather questions in you know uh, in places where maybe the microphone's not really well received, and so I'll just write them down. Or maybe you might be able to get an editorial partner or a production partner of some sort that's in a place. Um, you know, that maybe your reporters or producers can't necessarily reach very easily, but you have a partner who's who's motivated to help get the issue on the radar somehow. And all you're really committing to is, like, considering these as, at least maybe as we do, as actual just pitches. That's what they are. Um, And, you know, there's someone who understands that and is willing to help you to literally just gather them. Go to churches, synagogues, whatever, uh, union meetings, uh, gatherings of all sorts, and do it in person. Mm -hmm. We do that.
7: You know, a, a couple questions about newsroom logistics and how long this really takes. I mean, You mentioned one example where it was a couple years mm-hmm. from the time the question came in until you had a, a produced piece or produced pieces. So what's a more typical or you know, median timeline? That's one. And then the other one is, you know, I'm hearing some of your news folks on the air, like Chip, Mitchell, and Odette. Mm-hmm. Um, what's logistically? How does that work with the newsroom to get them into the process and break them away from the other stuff they're supposed to be doing? Okay. Um, yeah,
1: with with the um, just so everyone's aware, WBEZ has bureaus across the city: North Side, West Side, South Side, and Northwest Indiana. And so your question involved two of those reporters: Chip Mitchell and Odette Uso. Um The newsroom element, um, well, in some ways, uh, we have a hard decision to make. Um, You know, this, a lot of our stuff is very feature driven. Um, But at WBEZ, most of the reporters do all manner of things. They do, they help uh, set up live talk show segments with tape sometimes. They'll do short reports, spot news, and sometimes documentaries and long form features. So it's not, at, at our station, there's not a division of labor of who does the long stuff and who does the short stuff. It's just are you available to do a story for me? And I just hash that out directly with an editor. And um, usually what helps, frankly, is um, that either I will actually be editing them, so I can kind of work directly with them, or I can actually offload some of the editing to their editor and their, and their point, because they actually have a little bit of a mission of their own in the bureaus to be out and be relevant to communities that are underserved by the rest of our WBZ coverage. And so they have an interest that dovetails with ours sometimes. So they gravitate towards getting assignments from questions involving Chicago communities that happen to be underserved. Um, The other thing, your other question relates to actual production. Now with the bats example, we didn't literally check in every day with Rory, we checked in a few times (laughs) every couple months or something um, to make sure that that study, the bat study was done. Um, I would say in terms of typical turnaround, the the one thing you need to understand is that when we answer things, we actually produce a portfolio of products. Um, Since we're not just doing radio, we actually start feature-level multimedia production at the same time. And those edits and that production is every bit as intense and sometimes more so than the audio. And so I would say if I had to compress a time of like an editor, a multimedia producer, and a reporter or, or producer... You know, for an entire question with all of the products that we currently do and the intensity that we do them, I'd probably say about two weeks total, uh, including my time as well. But that's a lot. That's a lot of time. But the kind of edit, kind of the audience uh, growth strategy that we've made is after experimenting with kind of either easier formats like live debrief segments that are very quick, and we also developed a podcast. And we made a determination that our podcast sounded better when it was a highly scripted feature format and it stood out a little bit in in terms of the competition. And so um, the production decision was made on audience growth strategy and kind of standing out in a media ecosystem as well. And We thought we had more control in that way, and, I, and that was definitely my feeling. And so some of what you're hearing about the intensity of this is really just our decision of what products we want to make. Now, some of the smaller stations that are taking on or even considering the model, um, they don't have resources to do that at all. So the things that they've kind of settled for is like, okay, maybe we do a question every other couple of weeks or every other week. Maybe it will be on a set, um, a number of topics. We take on anything, but maybe they only have a business reporter, for example. Um, that kind of thing. So that's how that plays out.
0: I think we just have time for about one or two more questions, and then we'll hang out too and be here the rest yeah, of the conference. Sure. Mm, Dan? So,
2: just have a question on, on process. In, in, while it's going on, how, are, how, do you, how do you let people know that there are you know, if there are points of public input along the way as you're working the story?
5: Yeah, um, that, that's a good question. I, I mean, definitely through social media, we've done things. Um, we we use Tumblr to keep people updated, and we actually organize our Tumblr according to, like, hashtags. Like, every... Uh, we tried something in which every story kind of had this hashtag that people can follow, and it, we would gather input kind of as as a post merited. Um but sometimes we'll we'll design a graphic saying, hey, we're looking for your memories on this old amusement park. Um, put it out on social media, open a hotline. Um, sometimes we... I don't know what, what
1: else... There's some other... I mean, we have the power of the microphone. Yes. So at the end, sometimes at the end of one podcast or uh, broadcast uh, segment, we'll just say, we're working on this thing. Could you help us out? And sometimes that, you know, we... In, this is the thing we're learning. It's not always successful, you know. There's not always a group of people who are, who's really interested in saying help, you know, helping with say, um, uh, you know, how how did the Great Chicago Fire affect where the rich and poor lived? The nerds like that stuff. <laughs> the history nerds love it. <laughs> And we definitely make them aware that we're doing, and that's where we really get help, that kind of very targeted stuff. But, like, you know, you'd be surprised. We put out a call of people, like, go out and go taste donuts at other places you have actually not ever been to. And the best we ever came up with is people just saying, I love this donut place. Okay? So you have to be kind of careful of, like, what you're asking people, when you're asking them. But I would say the most successful have been very targeted social media and also um, at the end of...
2: Like radio segments. Yeah, it seems like you have to do both
1: because otherwise yeah, you're, just, yeah, absolutely. you're just getting one. Yeah, we also have different audiences.
5: Yeah, and sometimes entirely. we'll even we'll even you know have a third of the story and then ask um, for audience input on where we should go after that. Mm-hmm. So there's we got the story we got this question about um, the backstories of how different suburbs um, um, came to be in Chicago um, annexation. We had different suburbs, kind of like we had the mayors. Make cases for why we should choose that suburb to focus on in one of our stories, and we had this, you know, three-four minute produced piece um, in which people could vote on which one they wanted to hear from the next time mm-hmm. the, um, this this question rolled around. Um, yeah, and, like that, a and that and was later.
1: that was generated by the fact that we had made an editorial commitment of wanting the public to be involved and participate at a particular point. So we asked the basic question: Was how did Chicago expand over the years? What did it expand? What did it annex one after another? We did that online, and then we had a very simple story about that. And then when we were on air, we said, "Just pick the next one." We'll tell one of these stories of annexation and resistance of annexation. Which one did? It was our most engaging social media post ever but it was also at the end of a radio segment and then we did a story later on to follow up mm-hmm. with that so mm-hmm. I would say that like if you, if you consider opening yourself to the possibility of breaking up your final story just consider it's like well maybe there's a takeaway at each point and you can engage the audience at each of these and you can get participation along the way mm-hmm. and we, we tend to not we tend to sometimes talk about final stories but for us it's not necessarily final we actually may do another thing and that's another entry point
0: so mm-hmm. And speaking of final, it's just after three, so that will have been the final question. But we will be here to answer any more. And thank you so much for coming.